This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. about uh, maybe not getting their best shot to hit Best Buy. A lot of expectations around that, and we're trying to make sense of it all, so we turn to Matt Boyle. He's U.S. retail reporter here joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Mr. Boyle, what do you make of all this? Best Buy results out today. Well, I mean, it was a story that we've seen from other retailers as well. Target just the other day, where the top line looked pretty darn good. Sales are good. Traffic into the stores is healthy. But the bottom line, uh, you know, was not, and a lot of that is associated with the investments a lot of these retailers are having to make to improve their online operations, to improve their supply chain. And I know that's jargon. It just basically means that can you do same-day delivery? Can you do it faster than the next guy? That stuff has just become table stakes now in retail. And it came, you know, came calling for Best Buy, and their margins were not what Wall Street wanted. Matt, is it too late? Too little too late at this point? No, no, not at all. I mean, Best Buy, this is one of the best turnaround stories in all of retail, and maybe in all of corporate America right now. I mean, I don't want to take away from what Best Buy has done, but expectations are now high. That's a problem with you know having a turnaround artist as your CEO. Hubert Jolie has done a very, very good job over the past five years. He stopped the bleeding. He's made Best Buy relevant. Remember, the people, we wrote Best Buy off for dead yeah. six years ago. Right. Yeah. Their founder was trying to take the company private. It was an absolute mess. And now they're doing, you know, they're doing extraordinarily well. Again, on the on the sales side, they're putting in these new programs like total tech support, where they will uh, service any product you buy, even if you didn't buy it at, at Best Buy for an annual fee. They're having traveling salesmen come into your home to recommend everything from a router to a refrigerator. Wow. Remember, they sell appliances too, so they're capitalizing on Sears's demise and the demise of other uh, electronics retailers like HH Gregg, if you remember them. I still feel um, like people like to go and see yeah, this and stuff. Especially, I mean, it's, it's not just guys. People love to touch yeah. and feel, especially right. like smart home. If you're buying like a smart doorbell or something or smart, you want to kind of see it in action. Yeah. If you're buying a Google Home Assistant or, you know, you like to kind of see it a little bit, touch it, feel Feel it, play with it, especially, of course, and we all love watching, you know, the big screen TVs as well. But as TVs become a bit commoditized, it's this newer stuff like smart home networks that people are like, how does it work? How does it all fit together? And Best Buy helps you out there. High touch comes at a cost, though, right? I mean, and so how do they right size this in a way essentially that investors are comfortable with? Well, I mean, investors are not very comfortable today, but let's, you know, let's step back over the past two years. Best Buy shares have have done very well. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right. This does come at a huge cost. And the CFO uh, said today that their gross margins are going to be under more pressure in the back half of the year as they roll out these new programs like total tech support. This stuff is not cheap. But as Amazon is creeping into services, I mean, you know, Amazon, uh, when I bought a basketball hoop for my kids for Christmas, the Amazon guy came and did it. You know, it wasn't Jeff Bezos, but somebody (laughs) in the Amazon ecosystem. That would have been a story. That would have been interesting. Wait, somebody who actually put it together for you guys? Yeah, so I mean, Amazon will do services now. You know, you'll pay for it. But um, so what Best Buy does not want to have happen is for services to become commoditized. They have 20,000 of what they call their geek squad Mm -hmm. agents running around the country, you know, fixing your laptop, you know, mounting your your big screen TV. And but they need to go deeper into the home. And that's why they're doing these in-home consults. Does 
Um, Best Buy collaborate at all with Amazon? Is there yeah, any that, kind of that's relationship? the weird thing. Best yeah. Buy is what they call they're they're brand agnostic. They don't care Hi. what they're they don't care who they sell as long as they get the sale. So Amazon has been a vendor partner of theirs. You walk into a Best Buy, there's a little Amazon table with the Alexa and Philips lighting. You know, they have a whole smart home network. It's right next to the Google Home, uh, you know, display, and not far from the Sony and Samsung displays. And the benefit for Best Buy is that those vendors subsidize the cost of running the store. They help pay for the labor. They help pay. They almost pay rent in mm-hmm. that store. Mm. And the vendors love it because a lot of these vendors don't have a place to show off their latest innovations. It's their bricks and mortar. Yeah, Best Buy loves yeah. it because it helps their margins. So it's been a really big win for Best Buy having those vendors in the store. So Matt, as you look around and, and you mentioned rightly this idea that was explored uh, of taking Best Buy private and and doing all sorts of machinations there. Is there consolidation that potentially happens here? Do they link up with someone in a more formal way, even through some M&A to, to try and I think and they'll be doing better? M&A, maybe more bolt-on, like a smart home deal. You know, Amazon bought Ring recently, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of yeah, – you know, uh, so they are going to see consolidation in a market as fragmented as smart home where really nobody owns that market yet. I think you'll see Best Buy make some opportunistic acquisitions. I don't see any real massive deals on the scale of like Walmart buying right. Flipkart last you know the other week or or a whole foods amazon type of consolidation but best buy if they want to grab market share fast the fastest way is often to buy it and who else should be should we be watching in this space i mean how much does this say about their their competitors who else is on your mind right? well i mean it, like we mentioned appliances earlier home depot and lowe's are also grabbing a lot of those appliances dollars certainly um you know consu- but in consumer electronics i mean costco is a big player as well you know yeah. they will have deals it's that whole treasure hunt experience you know you'll find a deal on a tv at a costco that you might not even get at a best buy but what best buy has been able to do is kind of take price off the table mm. in their battle with amazon there were some studies out over the holidays found that Best Buy's prices, unlike a you know, typical basket of consumer electronics items, were only 0.3% above Amazon. So that's good. I mean, they've taken price off the table. And people are willing to be like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And if your name is Best Buy, you better darn well not get beat on price, right? It's the name on the door. And it's a very good I mean, the stock is up. I'm looking. Last year was up about 60%. I think it's up about 50% because it gave back some yeah. this year. Um, but so is there is there the thinking among the analyst community, the investor community, that a lot of this good news, enthusiasm is already baked in or there? I mean, there's still a lot. We'll see if we start to see some re-ratings, if people go from a buy to, uh, you know, to a, a hold, uh, perhaps. But there's still, you know, the, the bulls outnumber the bears uh, for Best Buy on, on the street right now. What's the lesson, though? It's kind of fascinating, right? Because you, you write off a retailer and then all of a sudden they can come back. Certainly. I mean, yeah, if you were buying Best Buy shares when they were in the, what, 30, 25 bucks or whatever it was uh, five, five years ago, you know, you are a very happy person today. But at the time, who would have known? I mean, they could have yeah. easily gone and, you know, done an LBO or something. People were definitely writing them off. Yeah. Matthew Boyle, thank you. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. U.S. Retail Reporter at Bloomberg News in our New York studio. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. President Trump's push for tariffs on imported cars and trucks, well, it's definitely threatening a shakeup in the global auto industry. It also might be motivating nations, including 
China and Germany to kind of talk about uh, what they want to do going forward when it comes to trade and really their own industries. Rebecca Lindland knows the auto industry so well, has followed it for a long time. She's Senior Director, Executive Analyst at Kelly Blue Book in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Thank you so much for having me here. Tell me about this headline. You see it and what do you think? Oh, my gosh. It came in last night when I after I landed in a plane and I thought, oh, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the bottom line is what's so frustrating about when I hear these kinds of things. First of all, it's tariff is just a fancy word for taxes, you know, mm-hmm. and it's actually really penalizing the manufacturers that have followed the basic tenant of build where you sell. Mm. And right now it's about 8.3 million vehicles that we bought last year were so were were produced in the US and then when you expand that to all of NAFTA it gets into about 13 million vehicles so we're out of the 16 17 million that were sold most of so them are most wow. of them are already built in, in NAFTA wow. wow that's really and, important because i feel like when we tell this story or talk about this story we have to un- i feel like people don't understand the global auto supply chain and really don't understand truly what kind of manufacturing is happening in the domestic yes. home front. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. It, it's it's important uh, to understand that the the big three, so so uh, GM, Ford, and Chrysler, their labor force is unionized, the UAW, United Auto Workers. The rest of the workforce in automotive is not unionized. So all the Toyota, Honda, Nissan, BMW, uh, Mercedes, mm-hmm. Kia, Hyundai, Tesla, none of those are unionized. So it's important to understand that. But when we think about how much production, like BMW exports 70% of the SUVs that they make in Spartanburg, South Carolina with American workers. They export that. Mercedes has a similar number for their Tuscaloosa plant. Mm. Hyundai and Kia produce a lot of what they sell here. It's just endless. Honda, Toyota, it's the numbers are staggering. And when we think about tariffs, it's just not going to it's not going to protect American jobs, union or otherwise. Well, and we're going to be talking a little bit about a new Volvo plant opening up in South Carolina. I want to pivot, Rebecca, to where we are in the calendar. We are just on the cusp of the Memorial Day weekend, mm-hmm. which you point out is not only interesting from a driving perspective, yes. but from a car buying perspective. It is. Tell us about that. So this is when, uh, first of all, we see not only traffic on KBB or Kelly Blue Book and Auto Trader, which we also own, tra- more people go Go on the, the sites and do their research on um, this weekend. We definitely see an increase that, than other past weekends. We also see more dealer applications for financing through mm. our, our dealer track and dealer.com uh, properties that we own as well. So we see this huge interest. And I think part of it is that people are planning their summers. They're planning long trips. You know, they're planning vacations. It's a great time to buy. There's a lot of inventory that's available. I have to say, I bought a lot of cars often in July because you're you're getting, you know, it's the old model year before the new model year. Right. And you can often get like a dealer car that's got all this stuff on it that's got a thousand miles and they take a ton of money off. Right. They do. Now, what's interesting with the industry, and as you said, 
Carol. I've been following it a long time. We are actually getting out of that traditional model year. Really? Yes. Why? So, so well, because they're just they're launching products all throughout oh, the year. Okay. So I just drove just two days ago. I drove the the 2019 Acura RDX, the small small crossover from Acura, uh, which which is made in the U.S. And it's you know it's a 2019 that is going to be available June 1st. Wow. So we're we're yeah. kind of getting out of that mode, but it's I would definitely encourage people, especially with gas prices rising, that they you know think about gas prices, but but do your research before you go to the dealer. What will gas prices do to all of like the EV and the increase in that? Is it going to have much of an impact? Uh, so or what, what's is there a tipping point? So hybrids and electrics have historically counted for less than three percent of the market of the new car market. The peak was in two thousand eight when it was three point four percent when gas prices peaked as well. What we're finding is that uh, based on research on and Kelly Blue Book, sixty percent of survey respondents said the rising gas prices have no impact on the kind of car that I'm going to buy. 40% said it will, and I'm going to look at a more fuel-efficient vehicle. What I think is actually happening is that consumers will go – they'll go to the dealership, and actually vehicles are about 20% more fuel-efficient on average than they were 10 years ago. So they're going to find that they don't necessarily have to compromise on the type of vehicle, mm-hmm. but they may find that they're buying a four-cylinder as opposed to a six-cylinder. So about – 10 seconds left. Where should we be thinking about gas prices over the next few months? So the tipping point is at $4. That's when people say, ah, no. That was 10 seconds. That was really, really well done. Um, I appreciate that. I would like to point out that Rebecca Lindblad's Twitter handle is at Rebel Car Chick, which I nominate for the best one that we've heard in a very long time, Carol Masser. It makes Jason Kelly News sound really, really pedestrian. And and Carol Masser sound pretty boring, too. I wasn't going to point it out. All right, Rebel Car Chick, I hope you come back real soon. So it's R-E-B-E-L. I know. Rebel. Rebel. That's how I got away with it. Rebecca Lynn <laughs> at Kelly Blue Book. Come back soon. So we turn now to a conversation about mortgages and the outlook about them. And we are lucky to be joined by Peter Winter. He's the Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Joining us on the phone here in New York City. Peter, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So how should we thinking we be thinking about the mortgage outlook? I feel like mortgages are very much on people's minds, especially as we look at interest rates starting to creep up through the rest of the year. So from a bank perspective, we are a little bit on the concern, a little bit concerned. Uh, we see two issues. One is there's a housing shortage. And two, with the rising rates, uh, it's making it a little bit tougher for bank for people to refinance uh, since so many people have done it already. And talk to us about that it, the the housing inventory that's out there. What what are the drivers there? So the the, the biggest issue is the lack of supply. And I think there's more of an issue uh, with affordable housing, uh, especially with rates rising. There's just doesn't seem to be enough affordable housing. Uh, for first-time home buyers, if you think about millennials, that's the biggest group right now uh, that's looking for entry-level houses, and there's just not enough of them. Right. You know, I recently I recently talked with the uh, CEO of Pulte Homes, and very upbeat though about the market outlook, but did talk about the shortage of supplies. If you want to talk, kind of, you know, 
macro fundamentals when it comes to the housing market, that seems to be the one main story. So what does this mean for those companies that are the mortgages servicers? I mean, what does that mean for them? Well, for mortgage servicing, uh, in a rising rate environment, mortgage servicing becomes a more valuable asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's less refi activity. So mortgage servicing assets is good. For mortgage originators, there will be pressure on mortgage originators. One of the interesting statistics you point out in your research, Peter, it really jumped out at me that only 5% of all current borrowers have a 75 basis point or greater incentive to refinance. That is, that feels really small. That feels like a very small addressable market here. (laughs) Well, it is. And that's that's the reason that there's a real issue with the uh, origination uh, activity. There's, There's two parts. There's purchase and there's refi. We've had decade level of extremely low rates, and you would think that pretty much everybody has refinanced now. At this point, where rates are, and so many people have refinanced, there's really no income benefit uh, to refinance, and that's why we're seeing a decline in the origination volume. Right. So so play this through the banking industry for us, because, you know, we have a lot of uh, investors and others who look at the banking space and also who are our customers, candidly. Um, the regional and the mid-cap banks versus the big money center banks, who, who's winning, who's losing here? Well, what's interesting is we, we are seeing uh, the regional banks take market share uh, from the bigger money center banks. So there's clearly uh, some market share shift that's going on. Uh, but right now, we expect mortgage origination volume or mortgage banking volume to be down uh, for the bank group. Uh, the one thing, though, that I would say that is positive is these regional banks, money center banks, very well diversified from a revenue standpoint. Mortgage banking makes up less than 5% for a typical bank. I'm also curious from what we're seeing in terms of you talked about the numbers regarding refinancing and mortgage origination, you know, where it tells us maybe we are in this housing cycle, if you will. You talk about shortage of demands, you know, so how much of it is kind of the cycle playing out? How much is it because of fundamentals, like you said, that there's a lack of supply? So the bigger issue is the lack of supply. The, yeah. the, the, the demand is there. Demand is there. The credit quality is excellent. In fact, what we're seeing to create more mortgage origination, we have been seeing that the banks have been willing to widen the credit box. Really? So that they have been. So huh. we are seeing FICO scores uh, move lower. Now, again, we're not going anything close to what it was during the financial crisis, where there's a lot of uh, subprime, uh, it's a lot that we're not seeing the uh, no doc, uh, no money downs. It, it's just they are uh, willing to lower the FICO scores a little bit. FHA has a product that only has 3% down payment. Uh, so we are seeing some widening in the credit box. So the bigger issue is the supply issue. And uh, also with higher rates, uh, there is the lack of refi. Peter Winter, really great stuff. Thanks so much for bringing us uh, this research. That is Peter Winter. He's Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities, joining us from New York City. You've been 
So we'll break this up a little bit. Smooth criminal. He's smooth, but he covers criminals. <laughs> Nicely done. Matt Robinson, financial regulation reporter on the crime beat, on but on the white collar, like the really hard to understand stuff. Matt, great to have you with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Bitcoin. People have been raising an eyebrow or two about this already, and now it looks like the DOJ is getting involved. Yeah, uh, DOJ along with CFTC are looking at the trading of uh, Bitcoin, looking for pretty typical uh, manipulation strategies. Uh, Technical name is spoofing, which is like you put in a bunch of orders that you don't actually mean to execute, which can move prices around. And, and there's another one that you talk about uh, in this story as well, right? Yeah, wash trading is something that is you basically trade amongst against yourself or against uh, you know uh, uh, someone else to sort of show that there's a lot of volume, that there's a lot of activity going on to in the draw market. other people in, right. essentially. And this isn't just something specific, obviously, to the cryptocurrency world, right? We see this in traditional trading, right? Exactly. You know, this is something that regulators, um, you know, the, the exchanges themselves, they have policies or should have policies and procedures in place that regulate or that look for this kind of conduct. Matt, since you understand this, what makes it trickier, though, when it comes to the digital currency world that maybe takes us to a different level? Or does it? it it's, it's trickier in that uh, that a lot of these exchanges aren't regulated or just about all of them aren't regulated. So it, it's hot. They don't really necessarily have compliance programs, procedures in place to spot this. Um, our understanding of the, what the government is doing is they're looking – they're getting the trading data themselves from the exchanges and um, looking into it to look for this kind of uh, – these kind of manipulative uh, strategies. Sort of pattern recognition exactly. to, to some extent. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things here is that it, it – the regulatory question has been the big question uh, around crypto so far. And overseas, you've seen the Chinese, you've seen the Japanese. South Korea has banned it altogether, I believe, uh, cryptocurrencies. It, do you get a sense of where this may lead from a regulatory perspective here in the United States? It, it's going to be tricky for you – know, you know, our regulatory framework here is uh, basically disclosure in nature, which that means is that they don't they don't tell you how to run a business. They tell you you have to t- tell us how you run the business. You have to disclose it. And it's um, in terms of regulatory, like in terms of what they can do, they have broad authority to police fraud, but they don't have necessarily the authority to regulate the markets directly. The way that the digital currency market is structured can it be one market that will be that can be easily regulated with full transparency? I think it, you know if if you look at the stock market, you know it's yeah. it's it's even that itself is is fragmented. But there is a lot of self regulatory bodies that that look for this kind of um, you know look for this kind of behavior. I think for the government, they want to see what's going on. They want to see uh, you know the SEC has come out and said that they want to see people registered. They want to they want to know what's going on in these markets. One of the interesting things you point out in, in your story, Matt, is that the Winklevoss twins. Obviously, best known for uh, their involvement, shall we say, with uh, the early days of Facebook. They actually hired NASDAQ to do some surveillance of their own exchange. So I guess that goes to the sort of self-policing aspect. That, that right. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, it's it's probably a smart idea given that, you know, if you can say to, you know, a potential user that, hey, we, we actually have, you know, policies in place to try to prevent anything that, you know, uh, manipulation in the market. Right, because ultimately, in order to get people to buy into the platform, right, or to get investors in the platform, they need to 
ensure that it's kind of safe to some extent or, you know, not going to be able to be manipulated, correct? Right. Yeah. And they need, to, they need to trust what's going on. What I think is interesting here is that, you know, Bitcoin, you can transact without, you know, someone in the middle. But when it comes to prices, you still you still do. And that's why you have, you know, this, these regulatory uh, rules. I'm always curious, too, about the folks inside the government, because I do feel like government often trails what's going on in the real world and kind of understanding how this all works. I mean, what has the Justice Department um, done or the SEC, for that matter, done to kind of up their game in terms of people who really understand this cryptocurrency world? You know, I think that that's a good point, and generally they are sort of behind the curve. But uh, since last fall, you know, the SEC created a specialized unit. They've tried to get themselves up to speed. Um, they're working with the Justice Department in other cases to sort of police fraud. So again, you know, if you know, they, they're interested in what the business model says um, and and making sure that's true. Well, and I believe we had uh, here at Bloomberg headquarters, uh, SEC. Yeah, we did. This Chairman week. Jay Clayton yeah. yesterday, who has been pretty openly skeptical, right? I mean, and has indicated that this is something that he and the team there are keeping Yeah, on. you know, his to his remarks yesterday, he's saying that, you know, I don't think we need new rules. It's just, you know, we don't we're not trying to police technology, but if if it, you know, if it's all made up, you know, they're going to police fraud. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. Right. But they're, they're, you know, that was his broader point that you're not going to go in and say, hey, you should have made this decision or that decision. It's like, wait, do you guys have a business? And about 20 seconds left. Is that just while we have you here? Is that sort of in line with his overall philosophy so far? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think with his and a lot of the other regulatory bodies is that, you know, they want to make sure that what you're saying is true. And if not, they'll, you know, they, you might see some enforcement actions. That's great. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Appreciate it for the uh, update. Matt Robinson, he's our financial regulations reporter at Bloomberg News. Check him out on Twitter at Robinson Matt. Joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Brian Jacobson is with us, senior multi-asset strategist at Wells Fargo Funds Management. $496 billion in assets under management at the firm. Brian joining us from Menominee. Menominee, did I say it wrong? Menominee. <laughs> Menominee. Yes, I, you Menominee. know, I was sitting here before you got started, and Jason Kelly and I were just kind of saying it back and forth, and then, and then I mess it up. Well, let's be honest. We were making a Muppets reference. <laughs> we were. <laughs> Menominee <laughs> Falls, Wisconsin. I'm sure that happens to you a lot, Brian. Nice to have you here. What a week, man. I keep saying it feels like it's Friday. It felt like it was Friday yesterday. Um, I don't know. How do you guys pull in some of these big stories, whether it's trade stories or what have you, what is it the pieces that you take in and think about that might impact strategies? Sure. Yeah, I think we've all been praying for the weekend to get here quickly, especially since it's an extended weekend and there's just been so much in terms of news flow and what the market activity and the such. But really, when it comes to looking at some of these political situations, um, you know, I, my friends over at the Wells Fargo Investment Institute put out a, an alert earlier today after the announcement of uh, President Trump canceling the summit uh, with Kim Jong-un and just reminding investors about, you know, if you are a long-term investor, this is why you're globally diversified. 
right? Uh, and it's really probably a fool's errand to try to position a portfolio uh, to anticipate uh, or even react to some of these geopolitical events. If you try to anticipate it, you might get whipsawed. If you try to react to it, you're probably going to miss the boat at some point. So really, we, we take a more structural approach to looking for some of the opportunities. And we've still been leaning towards uh, more cyclically oriented assets. Uh, I mean, we've been really, uh, when we look at things through a risk premium perspective, as far as what are those you know economic risks we want exposure to, we still favor exposure to growth. We think that a lot of people are underestimating how powerful uh, this uh, synchronized global growth story can be, how long it can actually last. Too many people are looking for this just to fizzle out over the course of the next couple quarters here, and we think it's got a lot more lasting power. So, Brian, when, when you think about that global story, how does emerging markets fit in there? I feel like this is the constant question that we're asking and, and getting varying answers on. What, what's, the, what's the Wells Fargo view here? Well, our view is that uh, emerging markets are still attractive. They're not as attractive as what they were a year ago because, you know, back then, I mean, we've advanced, what, like 36 percent? Right. <laughs> Almost 40 percent since then. So uh, clearly it's not quite as attractive, but we still find it to be uh, uh, very attractive for longer-term investors. Valuations, if you look at it on a price-to-book, price-to-sales, price-to-cash flow, price-to-earnings, or whatever your favorite valuation metric is, uh, it's hard to find uh, more than a few where it's not attractive or I'm sorry, less than a few words, not attractive, because in terms of uh, growth expectations, uh, people still, I think, are uh, have this perception that uh, most of the emerging markets are just almost solely dependent upon selling, digging things out of the earth and selling them to the developed world for their growth. But a lot of them have very well-developed domestic markets uh, that can spur growth. I was just talking to our San Francisco emerging markets team, and we have, have another team in Boston. And I think that they're in agreement about uh, just consumer spending in general, some of the domestic growth in China, or even if you're looking at uh, some of the Latin American countries, that that can help spur growth. Valuations are still pretty reasonable. And as a result, that's how we're biasing our portfolios. Wait, wait, which way are you biasing it? Oh, towards uh, investing in those emerging markets. So, chi- uh, so know, what, China? It's, it's, what, what specifically? Well, specifically, uh, China comes up most frequently, mm-hmm. and it's hard not to talk about China. I mean, it's 30% of the MSCI Emerging Market Index, so that is pretty much you know what's going to drive the majority of your gains. Uh, a lot of the headlines focus on what's going on in Turkey and in Egypt. You know, those are are very small parts of the major uh, the MSCI Emerging Market Index, and so you know, most of our attention is really on China and the Asian economies. Uh, but believe it or not, even Russia could represent some good value for our emerging market equity income team, uh, they're actually uh, looking at Russia as being an under-owned area, thanks to a lot of the sanctions, thanks to a lot of the headline risks around there, uh, that they're finding some very good long-term growth opportunities there. And Brian, as you look at it, you sort of have alluded to this, but trade, tariffs, how much can that really be baked into an investment model at this point, especially as it moves seemingly from day to day and, dare I say, from tweet to tweet? <laughs> yes, it does. Well, the, the way that I look at it is that if you think of like a, a distribution of possible outcomes, right, uh, we kind of know that now we're in a period of time where it can either be 
really good or really bad. And it's almost the same central tendency as what we've had in the past where it's been, oh, it could be kind of good or kind of bad. Mm. But now it's just the tails. You know, you have more tail risk. And I think that's where it's so important today to take a little bit more of a nuanced approach to finding those opportunities instead of just the, you know, the broad allocation towards a country or a region or even to just a sector. I think that it's really about knowing the underlying fundamentals of the business, the business model themselves. In emerging markets, there's a lot of hand-wringing over the amount of debt that emerging markets um, have accumulated over the years. But most of that is in like the commodities area or yeah. with state-owned enterprises in China. Uh, and so a lot of the companies have actually pretty darn clean balance sheets. So, Brian, just got about 40 seconds left here. So a customer walks in through your door at Wells Fargo Asset Management and says, I got some new money to put to work. Where do you tell them to do it? Just quickly, that 30 seconds. <laughs> well, we tell them to go to a financial advisor because that's primarily who we operate through. But uh, <laughs> as far as uh, where it is, it's about having that balanced approach, being biased towards growth. We still favor equities over debt. In the debt space, we still f- favor shorter-term high-yield instruments in the United States over other parts in the world, uh, mainly because there's a lot of risks associated with some of the international mm-hmm. fixed income. You do have the risks in the U.S., but it seems like uh, the risks are a little bit more Right. asymmetric here, more to the upside than the downside. So equities over debt and growth. Got it. Brian, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Brian Jacobson, Senior Multi-Asset Strategist at Wells Fargo Asset Management. $496 billion in assets under management at the firm from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.